Hi, and welcome to our Ask Me Anything Hours. My name is Dan Merrick. I'm Director of Plant-Based Culinary and Development at Ruby. And during these, um, during these office hours, we always open it up to our students to be able to ask us anything culinary related so we can help you on your journey, on your culinary path. And we're going to dive right in, starting with Robert's question here. So Robert is asking, what is the proper way to clean lion's mane and other mushrooms? So lion's mane in particular is a little bit trickier of a mushroom to be able to clean just because it is uh, so soft and so um, like basically if you get it wet, it absorbs everything on the moisture. So if you just wash it off with a little bit of water, which some people might do with other mushrooms, it'll absorb all of that water. So for lion's mane, you basically want to be able to just take the outside edge of it and just kind of dust it off with either a brush or a towel or a paper towel or something to be able to get any of the specks that are off on that. Now, if lion's mane is really dirty, you might need to get it wet, but then afterward, just make sure to dry it out afterwards. So you can put it out on a towel to be able to make sure that moisture kind of goes away. Um, that's one of the great things about lion's mane is it actually brings up um, all those flavors and will absorb them really well. As far as other mushrooms, you don't have to be as careful with those. I mean, a brush and the paper towels or the cloth will work great for those as well. But on something like a button mushroom, you can actually just run under water as well, too, to be able to get any dirt um, that's off of those as well. I actually do that with portobello mushrooms a lot, too. When I degill the bottom of the portobello, I'll rinse it out under water just to get rid of all the black gills that are underneath there. And then you end up, when you're cooking it, you don't get that kind of black soupiness that tends to happen with portobellas. So uh, Robert, I hope that helps you. Um, a little bit of brush, brushing with a little brush, um, or if you're just using a paper towel, would probably work with that too. My apologies, I'm getting over a cold, so I do have a little bit of a cough too. So, um, All right, so our next question is from Heather. I'm at 8,000 feet above sea level. What advice do you have for baking adjustments? Most recipes I make I have to make 20 to 40 servings of. What suggestions do you have for increasing quantities? So I did put a link here um, for baking at high altitudes. I'm not actually a baker so much myself. Um, I would actually probably refer you to Fran, who's a wonderful baker on our team that does vegan baking as well. Um, but this guide that I put there is probably a good um, kind of starter for you. I do know that you typically need to add a little bit more water to things, and you typically have to have the temperature go up a little bit, um, depending on how far up you are. Now, the exact amounts actually are in this link, so I hope that one, Baking at High Altitudes, helps it's a great blog, and it's a, a wonderful way to be able to look at different ways of um, different altitudes um, and ways to adjust your recipes to make sure that they work out just right. I hope that helps, Heather. All right, our next one here is from Tammy. Hi, Chef. How do you price out a catering request? I was asked to make two dinners and two breakfasts. How do you charge for groceries and the final product? Thank you. All right, so Tammy, that's a bit of a complicated question because lots of caterings caterers do it differently. Now, I ran a very successful catering business for many years, um, and I usually did larger quantities or larger amount, um, you know, larger amounts of people instead of just two. It actually gets a little trickier when you get down to a smaller amount because you're not buying your groceries in bulk. You're having to buy a very exact amount for each, for each guest. Now, 
Now, there's a rule that a lot of restaurants use, which is the thirds rule, which is one third basically goes towards your ingredients, a third goes towards your pay for your staff or yourself, and then a third goes towards the profit as well for those. Now, that's a great rule to be able to kind of base things off of, but that fluctuates, of course, all over the place. Now, one of the best things you want to do is be able to help price out your ingredients on what you're going to make. So make sure that you know ahead of time what you're going to be able to make for those two dinners and two breakfasts um, and what ingredients you're going to need to be able to make those out. Um, I typically will have a list of recipes um, or menu items, basically, for people to be able to choose from. And then I will price out those recipes according to uh, how many servings you're basically doing of those. Now that takes experience and it takes a lot of time actually doing those. For your first catering gig, you're probably going to have a little bit of gray area. Um, just give yourself a little bit of leeway on it. And then look at the recipes that you, pardon me, that you want to prepare. And you basically just want to go to your grocery store and price out all the things you need for each one of those. And then add on top of that for your price, for your labor. If you're the only um, person that's actually cooking, that's great. Um, if you need to hire somebody for help or any other things that you actually need to be able to help transport those products or packaging, et cetera, things like that as well. Now, once you price out your groceries and then you actually price out the labor that goes into it or any product that you actually need, then you can add a charge on top of that for the profit of the catering gig. Now that depends on expertise. Um, you know, starting out catering, you don't get a whole lot of profit over the top to be able to make sure that you're getting people to be coming to your catering business. The more um, experience you get, the higher the profit margin can be, because quite frankly, you can be more in demand for it. So, um, you know, it just kind of depends on how many years of experience you get into it on the profit um, and how much you can charge kind of over that uh, standard amount. So I hope that helps a little bit. But again, every scenario is going to be different and uh, every caterer is going to do it a little bit differently. But starting out... <laughs> Just list out your ingredients, see how much it's going to cost you to be able to make those, and then remember to add in your time as the chef, and if you have any people that you need to help assist you with that as well. So I hope that helps, Tammy. All right, so our next question here. Um, Heather, most recipes I make have 20 to 40 servings of. What suggestions do you have for increasing quantities. So I guess this is just going back to the altitude one, um, but in, when you're talking about baking. So that really depends on the recipe. So each recipe is going to have a different way to be able to increase it, to be able to go to 20 to 40 of something. Um, now, depending on the recipe that you have, um, you know, and where you're getting it from, that's pretty different. It sounds like you might need a little bit of experimentation to make that happen. Um, you know, if you're doing 20 to 40 recipes in baking, that's probably going to be a pretty exact science. And there are tables to be able to help you increase recipes for that. So you can actually find out what the weight quantities of everything are. And then baking, it's typically all going to be weighed out. Uh, again, that's not my area expertise. I'm not the baker expert, um, expert at all. So you might want to talk to Fran on her next live event for that as well, too. 
Um, but from my experience, it's basically, you know, depending on the recipe, you're going to have um, a wide variety of different things that you would have to increase or decrease on recipes. Because if you just multiplied, say, a recipe for something, you might have way too much spice on something or way too much flour um, or baking powder or baking soda or something like that, too. But um, again, not my area of expertise on baking, um, on like a typical recipe, if you're doing catering or something like that, if it's something, you know, not baking, you can, there's a little bit more leeway on that where you can just multiply your items by the quantity that you're making. Um, but in baking, it's a very exact science and it definitely needs a, a little bit of uh, formulation, a formulaic uh, relation to it. All right, so Ingrid, hello, Dan. What deters me from cooking sometimes is sauteing. There's a lot of smoke over the house. Any tips on how do I prevent kitchen decoration having oil with dust besides air extractor um okay so let's address the first one so uh uh sometimes when sauteing there's a lot of smoke in the house that tells me that if you're you're sauteing you're probably doing it with an oil there that probably has a very low smoke threshold so like something like olive oil actually has a very a, burns really quickly um so you might want to use something like a like an avocado oil or a canola oil or something like that that has a higher threshold of heat for it um you know a lot of people don't like using canola oil i typically would use avocado oil because it has a high heat threshold um you know sun uh, safflower oil is another one that i use a lot too if i'm using some of those but those are that's probably a good way to be able to avoid the smoke happening when you're sauteing um, and how do you prevent kitchen decoration from having having oil with dust besides air extractor? I'm not 100% sure what you mean by that, but I'm guessing just the dust in your kitchen decorating is collecting, or your kitchen decorations are collecting dust, um, and the oil is attracting it or sticking to it. It's, you know, probably the best solution for that is a warm cloth to be able to wash off outside of the oil bottles i hope that's kind of helping with what you're thinking there but I'm not 100 percent sure what you're asking on that one all right our next question is from lauren hi chef i somehow learned to use a forward circular motion when i slice is this all right or should i begin to retrain myself using a backward circular motion for the rolling method that is interesting um I don't see what the problem would be with either way. If you're, you know, rolling, if you're going like this with the knife or if you're going like this with the knife, um, the, when you're going backwards like this, you're able to put it on the top of, you know, like if this is a carrot here, you're going over the product. So it's going to be a little bit easier to control. Now, if you're rolling forward like that, that would mean that you'd have to put your blade basically down on one side first and then roll, I guess, roll over like, that which is a little different um so you know if it feels okay to you you're able to control your product well and you're able to get a good slice um and dice and everything out of it i think it should be okay if you're not being able to do that you're not really getting good control of the product on your cutting board you might want to think about reversing the order of that um it shouldn't be too long to be able to retrain yourself because it becomes something the more you do it it's just going to become very natural for you to be able to extend onto that so that's an interesting thing um i've not seen anybody roll forward on the circular motion most mostly backward so um if, but again, I don't see, as long as the product is, you know, being contained well and it's cutting well, it should be fine. But if it's not, definitely consider changing it over. 
All right, our next question is for Candy. Are seeds considered a peanut allergy or is it its own cat category of allergen? Um, yes, it actually is its own category. Peanuts are typically in just a peanut you know, allergy. It's usually just peanuts grouped into that one group. Now there is a nut allergy too, um, you know, that a lot of uh, people might have to say cashews, which are also related to hazelnuts and some 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 of those areas too. But those are typically different kind of breeds of nuts or, you know, different, like a walnut or something like that would have kind of a different allergen as well. But a peanut allergy is basically like, you know, like a lot of schools you can't have peanuts in, but you could have something like sunflower seeds. In fact, a lot of schools um, will use sunflower seed butter instead of peanut butter for their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Um, but they are two different allergens. All right, Lucille, I'm having trouble with making cashew creamy even if I soak the nuts for three hours and I have a Vitamix blender. Okay, that's actually a common problem. And what I actually do anytime I'm making cashew cream is I soak them overnight. So I go pretty long on those. Um, I will soak them for about eight hours to be able to do that. And then I'll dump out the water that's on them. I might even rinse them off a little bit to get some of the sliminess that's off. And then, yeah, do them in the Vitamix on, on the blender and start at a very small variable speed and then work your, your way up for those. Um, and Vitamix is great because uh, the motor will actually hold up to it. I've went through so many other blenders before I can actually, uh, you know, get something to make it really nice and creamy like that. You do have to let it sit for a while to be able to make it go. And sometimes I have to take breaks in between because the Vitamix will even heat up a little bit. So um, just keep that in mind when you're doing it. That you might need to take a break in there and soak them for longer. If you're still not getting it as creamy as you want, you can also boil the cashews as well if you're not doing a, a raw product. So, um, you know, my wife does that for her, like cashew cheese is like a nacho cheese that she makes where she'll actually boil the cashews with like sweet potatoes and other ingredients and then blend that entire mixture up in the Vitamix and it becomes very, very creamy. So soak your, your nuts longer or, um, you know, boil them and then blend them for a long period. All right, so Danica, next question here. Can you offer some suggestions on building up and storing spices and herbs? Yeah, that's actually a wonderful thing to do. I have a very large spice and um, herb cabinet that I keep in my pantry. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest things that uh, I can give for advice is to be able to, when you're getting your spices, um, take a Sharpie and write on the bottom of the bottle the month and the year that you bought the spices because they do have a shelf life once you open them and it's typically about a year so uh holiday season is kind of one of those times i like to be able to use up a lot of the different spices i have um and i always just make sure to flip over the bottle to be able to check the bottom of them now spices and herbs are going to be treated a little bit differently of course i mean dried herbs um you know uh they're still going to be about a year long that you would keep those as well they just want to make sure that they're in a dry place. Um, typically, a darker place is good for those as well, too. Um, you know, as far as uh, storage for spices, um, you know, I just typically keep them in little glass jars, basically. Write the number on the bottom for them and then um, 
you know, uh, get rid of them once that year has kind of gone up. It's not like they're going to lose all of their flavor for it, but they definitely will lose a lot of flavor the, the older they are. So if you have something from, you know, the, the 80s in your pantry, it's probably time to get rid of that. It'll take a lot more of it to get any kind of flavor out of it. Um, and then building up and, you know, your you just kind of build them up over time is uh you don't need to buy a lot of spices a lot of people make that mistake where they'll buy this big jar or something of spices they're like oh i got the costco version you know and it's like do you really need that much time you know or dried time um so it's it's better to buy them in smaller amounts and use them as you go and then get rid of them once they have kind of gone past their their freshness all right ingrid Following the question about dust, thanks for clarifying. The things I have over my kitchen decor get dirty with oily dust. I guess when cooking water, oil evaporates. I use a hood extractor over my range. Okay, that makes sense. So, yeah, that's basically, that happens in most kitchens, that oil kind of, uh, you know, kind of coating over things. So the best thing to actually get rid of that is to take uh, a warm water um, mixture with vinegar. So I'll typically do about a quarter, um, you know, vinegar to warm water and then take a rag and put it in there and then squeeze out uh, the liquid and then go over the, the countertops and the back of the stove and the things like that to be able to get rid of any of that kind of oil, you know, that uh, goes up in the air from, um, you know, frying or other things like that from oil, oil evaporating. That typically does happen very often. And your hood will probably have to be cleaned on the inside of it as well. It should go up for the inside. Um, so thanks for clarifying on that, Ingrid. All right, so Natalie, so many recipes use chickpea ingredients. My daughter has anaphylactic allergies to them. I haven't found uh, great subs for chickpeas, uh, though Great Northern is okay. Are there suggestions? Yeah, a Great Northern bean is a wonderful um, for those. And there's so many different varieties of beans out there. Now, if you're looking for a white bean, cannellini is a very widely available one. The Great Northern is wonderful too. Um, like. You know, I, there's so many different kinds of uh, beans out there, including a wide variety of um, beans that are uh, heirloom beans that, um, you know, are very kind of specific. And a lot of those ones, a lot of people are less allergic to because they've gone through less um, genetic modification. Because chickpeas are so popular and they're so prevalent, um, uh, there have been um, some genetic modifications that have happened to them over the years, just like wheat. And that's a problem with allergies for wheat as well, as they've gone through so many different changes that a lot of people can't tolerate them anymore. So um, I think that looking through to be able to see of like what kind of beans um, are available in your area, uh, cooking them from scratch is great, especially on those heirloom varieties. And if you just Google like heirloom white beans, you'll find a, a wide variety of different um, available options for those. And you can use them in place of the chickpeas. You could make a hummus out of all kinds of different beans. You could uh, put them into different dishes in the same kind of a way too. Now, some of the things that might be a little harder are looking for like an aquafaba, which is the protein juice that the beans are soaked in. Um, other beans will do that, but not as like not as great as the chickpea will as well too. So if you're using the aquafaba for something, you might need to look for a different replacer for something like that. Great. So Cheryl, what is your best substitution for filling a vegan lasagna? I want to make this as my main Christmas entree this year. I want it to be good. Thank you. That's great. Um, you know, when I make a vegan lasagna, I typically go the mushroom and spinach route. 
So what I'll do is I'll get a wide variety of different kinds of mushrooms. So I'll get, um, you know, maybe some shiitake, maybe even some wood ear um, and some baby bellas and then maybe some porcinis. And I'll saute those all up uh, and, you know, maybe with some onions and get them caramelized. And then I'll typically take some spinach and um, wilt that down just really quickly, put it in the water and take it back out again. You can use frozen if you want as well, too. Um, and that's typically what I use for my filling for my lasagna. Now, I will typically make a cashew, um, you know, cream that kind of goes through it. And I'll also use a vegan ricotta. And I usually make a tofu uh, ricotta, which is just, uh, I mean, we, we show how to do it in some of our classes but it's basically just a, a tofu that's crumbled <laughs> pardon me, uh, tofu that's crumbled up. And uh, I'll take a mixture of lemon juice and nutritional juice, nutritional yeast, salt, and then maybe some Italian herbs and blend that all together. You can put oil in it if you want to, but it doesn't need it. And then pour that over the top of your tofu. And that's a great ricotta substitution. And it's wonderful for pizzas. It's wonderful for lasagnas as well, too. So then you can just do your normal layering, just like you would on a, a vegetarian lasagna. Hope that helps. All right. So our next question here. From William, do you have any suggestions on flavoring to add to boiling pasta or save the flavors for the veggie in the sauce? So I'm a big proponent of salting your water when you're boiling pasta, right? So um, a lot of people don't do that enough to be able to put that in there. And they always say to try to make your water kind of taste like salt water um, when you're boiling pasta. And that adds a lot of flavor to the pasta just on its own. So um, that, you know, that being said, though, you're adding sodium to your pasta. Now, if you're looking to add other flavors to that, say, um, you know, you can add the flavors to the veggies in the sauce, of course, but you can also, um, you know, kind of parboil your pasta and then finish it off cooking in the, the sauce if you really want to absorb that as well. But I think really the most common thing is to salt your water um, and then get the flavor out of it that way and then toss the sauce um you know over the pasta but uh there are a lot of people that do like to kind of parboil the pasta get it so it's very al dente and then finish cooking it in the pasta i don't typically do that but i do know some people that like to do that just to absorb a lot of the sauce into the pasta itself um but i think that just salting the water for your pasta is probably the best bet all right, Lucille. I'm Italian. I do a lot of family cooking. What's the best way to use family recipes, excluding oil and dairy? What are the best substitutions? So that depends on the dish. Um, you know, for Italian cooking, I think that lasagna is probably uh, a great, you know, kind of a sub substitution. What I just talked about for the, the lasagna, um, using ricotta in that way, doing the, the um, tofu ricotta. Um, if you're if you're not doing any oil and you're not doing any dairy too, you can actually substitute things out pretty easily. Like if you're um, making a marinara, you don't have to worry about the oil. You can do, um, you know, a white sauce either using beans um, or tofu or cashews are wonderful ways to be able to make those. We do a wonderful manicotti um, as a tofu manicotti as well. Um, I make that very regularly for my family, actually. They love it. Um, it's a wonderful way to get your protein. There's no oil or dairy in it at all. Um, you know, for things like like garlic bread, 
we'll do something like a garlic butter, which is basically just, uh, you know, it's onions and garlic kind of cooked down in water um, in the stove. Uh, Sarno Brothers uh, have it featured in our Plant Pro class. And then basically you can take that mixture and it just like spreads right over bread really easy. Um, yeah, so I think that's probably one of the best things I'd suggest for that. Um, all right, Cynthia. Thank you, Chef Dan. Back to cashews. I just made milk. Great. Uh, watch Chef Eric's video, but I realized I wanted cashew butter. I've read raw cashews are not safe. Is the milk, cream, and butter safe? Yeah, raw cashews are actually fine to eat. Um, I've done it for years in uh, cashew creams um, using just simply raw cashews. Um, I'm not sure why where you've read that they're not safe, but I've never known them not to be safe. So the milk, the cream, and the butter are all safe. Um, and that garlic butter that I was talking about, if you do cashews with the garlic and stuff like that too, it's a wonderful way to be able to use those as well. And, you can, and you're baking those off too. So if you're worried about something with that, you're cooking it at the same time. But from my understanding, I've never known anything to be wrong with the raw cashews. I eat them regularly and so does my family. Hi, Lucille. Do you have any suggestions for Christmas holiday re uh, recipes and menu? Um, you know, it really depends on your family. If you're Italian, I think that lasagna that we talked about is a great way to be able to do that. I'll often do a, uh, a mushroom, mushroom Wellington. Pardon me. Um, in fact, I just did that for Thanksgiving. Um, where it's basically a puff pastry around a lot of mushrooms and spinach. I actually did a live event on that too. So <coughs> pardon me, I did a live event on that as well. So you can actually search and find the recipe for the Wellington too. You can do other kind of traditional things too. So like a lot key is a popular one. A sweet potato, like a baked sweet potato kind of mixture, or uh, one that my family likes to do a lot too is uh, having butternut squash and then putting like a grain mixture, like a quinoa or something into it. Um, and you can put, you know, fresh pomegranate seeds or something on it too, um, and some different nuts or seeds. A wonderful way to be able to kind of make the holiday a little special. Sorry, my cough is really getting to me. Um, all right. Denise, um, I can't have vinegar. Any substitutions in baking recipes like muffins that call for apple cider vinegar? That's totally outside of my comfort zone for that one. I would definitely ask Chef Fran on that one. Um, I am not sure what you'd use instead of vinegar in baking. In fact, I'm not even sure why you'd use that in it. I'm sure there's a chemical compound that would do it, but outside of my outside of my expertise, Denise, sorry. Um, all right. So Ingrid, what's the difference in usage of baking soda and baking powder? So there are two very different uses between the, the two. Um, let me just do a quick. So really, I mean, they're going to, the recipe is going to call for one or the other. They don't really go back and forth for each other. But again, this is outside of my expertise not a baker more of the chef on that side so they're both like leaveners but they are definitely chemically different um 
But as far as the expertise on each one of those, again, outside of my expertise, I'm not really known as the baker. So um, I hope that helps out. All right, Roberta L., um, what are some of your favorite curries and how do you choose? Well, that's great. Um, I actually like to make um, kind of custom curries. So uh, there's a lot of different kinds of curries out there. You can um, build them up um, from your expertise. If you like to do something like a Thai curry, if you like to do something more of an Indian curry, and then there's Southern or Northern Indian curries, some that have more spice, some that are more hot, some that are coconut based, but in general, curries are basically those flavors, like big flavors and uh, really making those combinations of those flavors. So I love to be able to add different things like coriander and turmeric, and I do chili powders and different things, a little bit of cumin and things. I think those are wonderful ways to be able to start <laughs> as your flavor profile by taking raw seeds, actually like not raw seeds, but your, your dried seeds whole, and then toasting them in a pan and then grinding them up either in a mortar and pestle or using a spice grinder is actually a wonderful way to be able to uh, make your own curry and get a lot of big flavors out of those. You can also bloom out those spices to be able to, pardon me, get a bigger flavor. Um, to get a bigger flavor. And you can do that by blooming. Basically, you put a little oil into a pan and you put this, these these seeds into those, and then the, just after a little bit, they'll release all those flavors, which is amazing. You can do it with the the ground um, flavors as well, or the ground spices too, but it really works best with whole spices. So um, you know, I have a wide variety of different flavors for these two. Like uh, you know, probably at home I do more Indian you know curries, probably more Southern um, Indian curries. Um, you know, doing different you know, mixtures with a lot of different vegetables. Um, a lot of times I'll do mine with uh, coconut milk as well, just to kind of bring down the heat level for my kids, but you can always increase your heat level as much as you want to as well. Thanks for that, Roberto. Karen, hi, Chef Dan. What cookbooks do you recommend for food pairing, flavor combinations, and recipe development besides the flavor matrix and the flavor Bible? Thanks. Karen, the flavor Bible was exactly where I was going to go to. In fact, uh, Char, our um, person who handles our Instagram just recently asked me this. And the Flavor Bible is one of my favorite kind of go-to uh, flavor development books. It's not really a cookbook, but it does tell you kind of what flavor combinations match with each other very well. Now, the Flavor Matrix does kind of that similar thing. So I think those are two really, really good places to be able to start. <coughs> Pardon me pardon me, with your flavor combinations. Now your food pairing, I think that that's something that, um, you know, can happen out of those two. But as far as looking at different cookbooks to do that, I think you're going to get a wide variety of different inspiration, depending on the books you're looking at. So um, you can see what kind of flavor profiles fit with each other, just by seeing some of the dishes and the recipes that they're putting together. So you might get inspired by something in, say, like a Mexican cookbook, and you might find something like lime and jicama, which a lot of people don't use jicama as much. But uh, pairing lime with jicama is a great way to be able to kind of get a bold flavor out of jicama, which is known more as a very mild flavor as well. So um, kind of increasing that out. In fact, I knew a teacher who would often 
uh, put lime juice and cayenne on jicama for her students to help them get away from the whole talky thing where it was just it was really sour and really spicy and that's what she did to try to get them off of those but um going through some of just your favorite cookbooks that you already use and pay close attention to the ingredients that they're using in each one of those to see what flavor what flavor profiles fit together well all right sorry about all the coughing folks cynthia uh cashews continued should i refrigerate the raw cashews after opening the bag i'm glad the milk turned out okay what is the difference between the cream and the butter apologize for the simple question no apologies needed at all um you know after i open the raw cashews i typically don't uh i keep them just in a you know container you can keep them in a jar that seals on the top or one of the you know the oxo things that you you know the tops you kind of push down um, those totally work fine after you turn it into a milk or a cream i would definitely refrigerate it though or after you're soaking them um, i would definitely refrigerate it because it starts a fermentation process once that happens if you leave it out you don't want it to ferment for too long it'll definitely alter the flavor on that and the difference between the cream and the butter is basically texture and how long or how much moisture is in it, right? So the cream is just, it's really just like a cream. So uh, it, it's pourable slightly, you know, it's gonna be a little bit thicker, but it is still pourable where the butter is actually pretty hard and it should be that. So um, you can have a little moisture to it to be able to help spread it. But by and large, you're trying to get most of the moisture out of it and that'll actually turn it into the butter. Um, all right, so Ingrid, how do you manage pork so it does not get very dry? People complain about this meat, but also chicken breast having a dry taste. That's completely out of my wheelhouse, Ingrid. I've been plant-based for 26 or 27 years now. So uh, I have no idea how to keep pork um, from getting dry or chicken. Um, that might be a better question for Eric or... Um, maybe barton if he's on one of the live events too all right so another one from ingrid here the hand whisk is for mixing but also adding air uh yes for mixing can traditional spoon for eating do the same and what's the deal about the wooden spoon for mixing in pots so um let's see a spoon is not typically going to get you the air into something but a fork will a fork will actually help a little bit. So a whisk, hand whisk is great. It's a great tool that does help to mix, but it's really for getting air into things and helping to combine things very well. So the spoon wouldn't work as well, but um, if you're trying to get air into it, the fork would do better, especially with the tongs on it as well. It's not going to work as well as a whisk, but it will work over time. Just going to take a lot more elbow grease on that. And what's a deal about wooden spoon for mixing in pots you can use any kind of spoon you want or a spatula for mixing into pots there are a couple areas where wooden spoons are ideal um you know for mixing in pots one is if it's got a you know inside that could be scratched by using something metal on the inside also if you're doing something on the countertop putting a wooden spoon on the the stove top will actually help from preventing it to boil over if something does um, but yeah, I'm not 100% sure what you're on that one, but um, those are my suggestions. All right, Janet. Um, hi, Chef. I'm interested in sprouting. Do I buy seed packs of what I want to sprout? Yep, that's actually 
probably one of the best ways to do it. You can do a lot of different ways of sprouting. Um, you know, they have sprouting jars, so you can just have a jar and it has like a top on it um, that will um, be aerated out. So air will get into it, put it into a sunny spotter if you want to, but um, you can basically just put the water into it and they will begin to grow and they'll begin to sprout. Now there are sprouting trays and there's different ways to be able to do that because if you do it in a jar, it kind of becomes this whole big mass that's kind of all stuck together. Sprouting trays are laid out so you can actually just go along with your scissors and cut them through, which is really wonderful to be able to kind of get just that really nice look on it too. So I, I kind of recommend the sprouting trays um, and then putting the seeds in there, watering them a little bit, you'll actually get the sprouts that come out for that. And they're wonderful to add to all kinds of things. All right, Ingrid, what's your recommendation for best salad books? I finished this salad review lesson, but I'm short in creativity for creating healthy salads, savory salads. Huh. Um, let's see. There are a lot of different books that have salads in them. I'm trying to think of something that might have a good uh, variety of them. And um, there's one on the tip of my tongue right now that I can't think of her name right now. Um, but if, shoot, it's not going to come to me. Um, but I'll email you, Ingrid, what the book as soon as I think about it, because I've got it sitting in, on my, uh, in my kitchen right now. Um, and I'll send you the, the, the name of that one too. Um, darn it. It's, it's a, it's a, basically it's a vegetarian cookbook, but it has a lot of variety of different things you can add to that. Now that's actually a really good way to be able to look for those is look for inspiration and, um, you know, salads are typically something that are featured in a lot of vegetarian and vegan cookbooks, but they also tried not to make them the centerpiece because so many vegans and vegetarians are so used to going to restaurants and that's the only option for them. But getting create, creative with a salad, um, you know, you should just use your expertise that you have yourself and look to combine those flavor combinations. So if you say want to go to Mexico, you can add different things like black beans and pinto beans and put some chili powder and cumin on those beans. Maybe cook them with a little bit of uh, yellow onion or white onion. And those can be a great topper over the top. Maybe with some pepitas that maybe you dry roast over the top. Um, you can add other things that you would typically add to maybe like a burrito or a taco. So like maybe black olives or, um, you know, you could even do a little bit of rice if you wanted to, to mix that into it. Um, now, if you wanted to go, you know, somewhere else like the Mediterranean using chickpeas uh, would be a good thing with a lot of, of fresh lemon and maybe some fresh oregano um, and then use <laughs> different kinds of greens. <coughs> use different kinds of greens as well. So, um, you know, trying like arugula, um, doing things like romaine, uh, you know, spinach. Those are kind of top ones that I use in my house a lot, but uh, mixing up the, the greens is always wonderful to get different textures and different flavors out of those greens too. Um, all right, so Ingrid, I'll make sure to email you the name of that book when I uh, get offline here and find it for you. Um, let's see, Ingrid, uh, again here, do you have any tips on how to preserve bell peppers in the fridge so they can last longer? Um, you know, typically what I'll do is I'll keep them whole in the fridge and I'll keep them in the, in the the drawers and the crispers, and they last a number of weeks usually doing that. Um, when I cut them, I usually cut them um, around the outside, and then I'll put them into a sealed container. 
and I'll get a little bit more uh, life out of them that way. But typically I just keep them whole, but I do keep them in the, the drawer of the refrigerator to help them last a little bit longer. All right, Cynthia, always great seeing you again. Uh, Chef Dan, thanks for doing this event while you're recovering a bit. Thank you so much. My, my whole family's been sick for a while and we can't wait to get over it. So um, I hope you're well soon. Thank you very much, Cynthia. Judy, thank you so much for giving us your time when it's hard to talk. We all have a similar bug in Idaho right now. <laughs> Sorry. So yeah, thanks for uh, bearing with me. Um, and thanks for everybody's questions today. I hope we got to them all right. And uh, we'll see you next time for our Ask Me Anything hours. Have a great day. <laughs>